Welcome to the podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, the podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, here are your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Welcome back, boys and girls, to another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. This is part two of our series on pot, the legalization of marijuana, the history of marijuana. Um, a couple weeks ago, Jeff, you and I discussed basically the history of marijuana. I think we took it up until about the 1970s. And today, in celebration of our second pod uh, on pot, we have a very unique beer in front of us. Jeff, do you want to introduce us to this uh, new Belgium? Well, yeah, it's a new Belgium, a very famous uh, craft brewer, and and they're in Colorado, started in Colorado, I think they got another brewery in North Carolina now, but this is their Hemper, uh, which they make, it's an HBA, Hemp and Hops Pale Ale, and uh, emperor, <laughs> and they make this uh, with hemp, I don't know if they've uh, used the uh, the industry out there in Colorado, if they get sourced by them, but they brew this with hops and hemp. So open one. I've never tasted it. All right. So the the, the uh, side of it says the Hemper HPA is a new kind of hoppy beer blending hemp with hops for complete sensory domination. <laughs> All go. right. Sensory domination. I, I got the, this. The Hemper is a guy with a little bud on his head, right, too. So, so. let's uh, open that up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just took a big whiff of the emperor, and it is a sensory domination right there. Yeah, the the uh, the whole home office is going to smell like a little bit of dank weed here. <laughs> All right, so here we go. Mm, you know what? I was expecting horrible because I don't like IPAs. That's not too bad. It's a pretty mild idea. It is. The hemp takes an edge off. It does. <laughs> With the smell, I was thinking this was going to be horrible. And you know, if regular listeners will know how much I dislike IPAs. But I don't know. Maybe the hemp does take a little bit off. It is also at 7% al- by volume alcohol. That's that's a pretty high alcohol it's a, it's content. It's a hefty beer. It is yeah. a hefty beer. So we got a couple here. So maybe by the end of this whole thing, you and I will be feeling um, – uh, relaxed. Yeah. Uh, we won't get the munchies or anything. Probably not. I don't, well, I don't, I don't think, think I said no THC. Yeah, I don't think there's so. any THC. Uh, let me turn the volume off of my computer here. Someone's texting me. I don't want that to happen. All right. So, Jeff, let's jump back into this thing. And I think last time we established that the history of marijuana is confusing, um, that it's loaded with propaganda, false information, um, outright lies to attack uh, certain groups of people, uh, particularly people with brown skin. And we left off right around 1970 uh, with the development of the DEA or the Drug Enforcement Agency, uh, which was taking over for Henry Anslinger's narcotics division and that brings us up into the 1970s right and and we had mentioned i think that uh, as college students as uh, marijuana became uh something that white middle class kids did a lot of uh n- not coincidentally uh states 
uh, either began, I think there were 11 states that decriminalized it back then, and there were areas where the laws, the police just kind of looked the other way, even though there were laws on the book. And it was because of who was doing it. Uh, right. They, you know, they, 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 you know, they weren't going to, again, put these white middle class college students in jail for doing this as they would, uh, either the, uh, you know, the Mexicans or the, the, the black musicians or whoever they had encountered before. Uh, it was much easier to demonize that drug when it was those people doing it. Now, as, uh, the 70s went on and marijuana became more and more associated with the counterculture, uh, there was a backlash. There was a backlash to the counterculture politically, uh, and there was a backlash, uh, not coincidentally, again, uh, to the use of uh, marijuana. And uh, so we see in the late 70s attitudes toward marijuana change. And uh, marijuana, it was, you know... Uh, if there's one thing the same people who don't like Mexican immigrants and black jazz musicians, uh, you know, who they don't like as, as well as those people, it's dirty hippies. Oh, yes. Yeah, they don't want dirty hippies. And so marijuana was sort of associated with them. And, and to be truthful, if, if you know about the hippie movement and Timothy Leary, he said, tune in, turn on, and drop out. That was his motto. But the idea – now, he – was referring more to LSD. But the fact is, marijuana uh, it does make people, uh, it can make people pretty passive. It can make them more receptive to music. That's why it was so widespread, uh, the use of concerts. Uh, you know, people can smoke uh, pot. You can go to an art museum. Colors sometimes are more vivid. What it does is it emphasizes being rather than doing, and that's what Timothy Leary was talking about. Uh, I don't think most people say, I smoked pot and I got really, really ambitious. And I, <laughs> I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's not that. And, and so it is a little, di- you know, it is associated with a culture that's a little different than the 50s, 60s, you know, go to college, get, you know, really well educated, get a good job. And plastics, if you ever right. watched The Graduate. Oh, know. yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yep. you know, and, and and so they were right. It was, it, it, it's not that they associ- that they were associating uh, the drug with these uh, people and their values willy-nilly, uh, and they didn't like them. And uh, there's a guy named Ross Perot down in Texas, and he helped la- launch something called the Texans War on Drugs. And now that war on drugs became sort of a mantra for a war on all drugs, including marijuana. Right. So if we go back to Nixon, for example, now you have to remember Nixon in the 1970s, you have a you had a run of democratic control through the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s and the 1960s through Congress. Um, and the Vietnam War is becoming extremely unpopular. And the conservatives in the 1970s are sort of feeling um, – that they are up against a, this large force and they need to push back on. Uh, in 19, there's an interview done by a man by the name of Dan Baum. He was for Harper Magazine. Uh, he interviews a man by the name of John Erickleman. I probably mispronounced that. And he was Nixon's chief of staff. I'm sorry, the domestic policy chief. 
And this is what he said in 1984 when asked about marijuana. He said, we knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalize both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Um, now, this is coming from the highest ranks in the Nixon administration. Um, and Nixon, like I said, pushing back against the hippies, uh, pushing back against the civil rights movement and what their rights have been. So the conservatives in the 1950s, I mean, 1970s, I think are feeling attacked yes. and are a feeling. Well, they're definitely feeling Right. And this is a way I don't want to paint all conservatives that they were against blacks and hippies, because that would be a certainly a, a, a gross ex exaggeration. But we can certainly say Nixon was using this as a wedge issue in the 1970s. Well, it's interesting you would uh, mention conservatives because uh, one of the uh, dominant conservative voices in the 60s and 70s was uh, William F. Buckley Jr., yes. who had a mm -hmm. program called Firing Line that right. I used to watch. Way back when. And I remember when he said, yeah, I, I tried marijuana. I was like, what? And he goes, yeah, he was a great sailor. He wrote a book called Airborne, I think, about his – several books about his sailing adventures. But he goes, yep, I went uh, 200 miles out. So it's beyond the, you know, the jurisdiction of the United States. And he says, I tried marijuana. So, yeah, not every conservative felt – uh, like this drug had to be tamped down, but a lot of them did. Uh, and of course, when Ronald Reagan uh, becomes president, you have the uh, Just Say No campaign that was started by Nancy Reagan. She, it was, um, that was, uh, the genesis of that was a letter to Nancy Reagan uh, by a teenage girl asking, what should I do when I get peer pressure to use drugs? And Nancy uh, Reagan Responded famously, just say no. I remember. Just say no. I remember when I was in high school, we had those uh, foam um, cafeteria trays, and stamped on the cafeteria trays was just say no. I mean, what better way to base a whole national movement, uh, research-based movement against drugs? Than a letter from a teenager to the first lady. <laughs> I mean, thank God we dumped a lot of money into that. Um, in 1970, we had the Controlled Substance Act pass as part of what you called the war on drugs. And we get the scheduling system for drugs, uh, Schedule 1 being the worst, Schedule 5 being the least uh, addictive. To give you an idea, Schedule 5 drugs, uh, lowest potential for abuse, dependence, accepted medical qualities, prescription required, re uh, fewest refill regulations, uh, Robitussin uh, is part of that. We get Schedule 4 drugs. Uh, Xanax, Valium is part of that. Schedule 3 drugs. Uh, Tylenol with codeine, steroids, testosterone. Um, Schedule 1 drugs. These are high potential for abuse and dependence with some medical qualities. Vicodin, codeine, meth, uh, Adderall. Uh, OxyContin or Schedule 2 drugs. Schedule 1 drugs, most potential for abuse and dependence, no medical qualities. Heroin, LSD, ecstasy, peyote, marijuana. Yeah. 
Yeah. Which which one doesn't fit? Like that, that would be uh, that is so unbelievably asinine. Uh, based on all, I mean, whether you are pro legalization or not, there is absolutely zero research to support that you're going to put mar- marijuana in the same category of heroin, LSD, S, uh, ecstasy, and I would even say peyote is should not be in that either. Well, it's not as addictive. I mean, heroin, these, these yes. opioids are, as we know, are terribly addictive. And, and marijuana is not proven to be physically addictive. People can get psychologically dependent on it. But And, yeah, you know, uh, Ronald Reagan's, uh, uh, that's the... Uh, his uh, war on drugs uh, was fueled by conservative parents uh, groups in the late 70s. And when he got into the presidency, uh, he bought the war on drugs to the White House. And in 82, he created the White House Drug Abuse Policy Office. And he appointed this chemist named Carlton Turner to the job. And Turner came from... Mississippi. He had directed the marijuana research project at the University of Mississippi. Oh, God. And he ran the government's <laughs> only marijuana farm. He ran the government's only marijuana. And Turner believed that marijuana was an extremely dangerous drug, one that, among other things, it could have the power to possibly induce homosexuality. <laughs> so that's who the, you know, the head of the White House Drug Abuse Policy Office is was he's worried about pot and its relationship to the gays. What? Another group which you can demonize. Right. I mean there that we're associate you see how this is not driven by research into the drug or what the, it's 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 driven by who uses this drug. Right. And this is a crazy thing. Like back in the thirties and forties, there's this connection to sex that they want to make. And back in the thirties and forties, it was going to make white girls want to sleep with black men because they were going to get high and really like their music or something. And now it's going to cause, and I guess maybe in this, by the eighties, that isn't politically correct anymore because, um, we can have interracial marriages now, but it's still okay to beat up on gay people and, and hippies. And, hippies. <laughs> and also remember that in the early 1980s, this is the beginning of AIDS too. Right. So you also combine that into fear mongering. This has been used, I think, clearly uh, as a wedge issue. And then in the 1980s, because of what Reagan is doing in the conservatives, you start getting this concept of mandatory minimums and three strikes in your outlaws being passed um, because of the crack cocaine epidemic that's happening in the cities. And people who are using marijuana get caught up in this. And if you don't know what mandatory minimums are, it's basically the legislative branch telling the judicial branch that if certain crimes are committed, there is a mandatory minimum in which they have to be sentenced. It takes the choice away from the judges. And I'd like to get back to that. But let's listen to this little product of of the time period. Okay. Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay. Last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? Well, I remember that. That was on TV back in uh, when I was quite a bit younger. That's a frying egg in the super hot pan. Right, because that's your brain on drugs. Right. It's, and the thing is, they're not making the distinction between 
marijuana and heroin. It's right. just, you know, that's your brain on marijuana, too. And Reagan got some stuff passed, the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, the Anti-Drug Abuse Amendment Act of 1988, which raised federal penalties for marijuana possession, cultivation, and trafficking. And uh, so a possession of 100 uh, marijuana plants now carried the same sentence as possession of 100 grams of heroin. They're still equating, as you mentioned in the schedules, mm. Marijuana and heroin, right. which is ridiculous. Well, and it, I think that uh, dovetails real nicely into the idea of the gateway drug. Um, the D.A.R.E. program that was established, I think, under Ronald Reagan. Actually, let me go back and check that. That might have been under Richard Nixon. Um, if you remember uh, McGruff, the crime dog, and drug abuse resistance education, the D.A.R.E. program. Actually, I think that was st- started back in the 1970s. And they were really big on marijuana being a gateway drug. And the idea of a gateway drug is that if you take this drug, uh, you're more likely to take other drugs. I think in another way of saying it is that if you can close this gate, you can keep people from getting on heroin and uh, other drugs. Now, there's a ton of problems with the concept of a gateway drug. If Even if you do the research today, yes, if you are using heroin um, – there's most likely you probably use marijuana at one point. If you use marijuana, there's probably a greater likelihood that you're going to use heroin someday. But does that mean that if you're using marijuana, it's because you use marijuana, you're more likely to use heroin or any other and, drugs? And if you would go back farther, almost everybody had used alcohol. Right. So you can say alcohol is the gateway drug. Right. So I, I try to dig in on this gateway drug thing and do a little research on it. And I, I kind of gave up on it, to tell you the truth, because the scientific literature on it is just so – for one, you have to try to get through everyone's bias, um, the people who are really trying to prove correlation equals cause and effect. And correlation does not prove cause and effect. Um, when I was in college – uh, one, my, I remember my statistics professor said, as the sale of ice cream goes up, so does the number of rapes in a city. Um, so therefore, the sale of ice cream equals more rapes. Now, that's a, that's a true correlation, but there's no cause and effect there. The, the reason for that is because more rapes happen in the summertime and you sell more ice cream in the summertime. So just because there's a correlation does not mean one thing is causing the other thing. So just because you can demonstrate that people who use heroin also use marijuana does not necessarily mean that if you can stop people from using marijuana, they're not going to use heroin. As you point out, they all use alcohol. They probably all smoke cigarettes. Right. Drug use and drug abuse and addiction is a very complicated thing that we still don't understand. We still don't understand all the environmental impacts, I mean, influences on us. Hereditary. We, yes. Uh, there's a heredity uh, component to alcohol. The genetic influences yeah. on us. And th- this also goes to say that I don't think anyone out there is saying, look, hey, marijuana should be given out in Sunday school and in first grade classrooms. This is a, a harmless thing. I don't think the people of legalization aren't saying that. The people of legalization are simply saying we live in a free society. Um, this is clearly a freedom issue. There's problems associated with it being legal. 
There's problems associated with it being illegal. We'd rather deal with the problems of it being legal. Um, we can handle those problems. We can regulate those problems. We can educate people. And plus, on top of that, we can also get tax money off of this. Um, well, so, well yeah, like, like you said, uh, it, it's a complicated problem. But uh, and and that's that what what is wrong with drug policies all along, and in the in the you know in the eighties and in the early nineties, it wasn't complicated. Just say no. Right. These drugs are bad. three strikes and you're out. And and so all the legal tools that were associated with fights against you know heroin and cocaine, um, including civil forfeitures, you know search powers. Uh, conspiracy laws uh, and mandatory minimums like three strike and three strikes you're out. All of these are used just as against heroin and against marijuana. So uh, I I read an ACLU article from 1996 and two years after it said this. Two years after California's tough three strikes and you're out law went into effect, twice as many defendants have been imprisoned under the law for marijuana possession as for Murder, rape, and kidnapping combined, all right? Overall, 85% of those receiving stiffer stiffer sentences under the law had been convicted most recently of a nonviolent offense. And this, again, we started out talking about how uh, people and minorities were, were discriminated against uh, in the original laws against marijuana. And here we have it again, because not only are, <clears throat> this is going to really, really adversely affect minorities, and they're going to be sent to prison. The same report said uh, black people were sent to prison at a rate 13 times that of whites, and black people made only 7% of California's population and, and account for 31% of the state uh, prisoners. Uh, they constitute 43% of those who are sentenced under the new law. The majority of the... Okay, so anyhow. which Let me just go back, which goes back to what Nixon's... It, just go, it shows what they're doing. Right. Yeah. It goes back to what Nixon's uh, domestic policy man said. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be black, but we could disrupt their communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. And that's exactly what's going to happen. It comes to fruition. That very thing that um, – yeah, you need a bottle open there for your new uh, emperor. Um, exactly what he was saying in the 1970s is coming to fruition in the 1980s. You are disrupting the African-American community. And I know that we're not getting into the discussion of uh, crack cocaine and the crack cocaine epidemic of the right, 1980s, right. because there is part of that. And there's also, I would, we'd be remiss if we did not mention the rise in violent crime in the 1980s as well. And this all gets rolled together with sort of almost the packaging of marijuana. And that goes back again to the gateway drug. Um, so I, I always, as I was doing this research, I always came back to this is really complicated. This is a very complicated problem when you're talking about crime, when you're talking about drug use, when you're talking about poverty, and all these things seem to be connected. And it really seems that we are now beginning to do the research that we should have been doing almost 80 years ago. Absolutely. And, and you know, in the mid 1990s, uh, um, the uh, data provided by the Bureau of Pr- Prisons. Uh, suggested that one out of every six inmates in the federal prison system, this is about 15,000 people, 
had been incarcerated primarily for a marijuana offense. You know... It's cheaper to send someone to college than it is to keep them in the federal prison system, and you're keeping them in prison for a marijuana offense. Remember, more people had been put in prison in California when they studied it than for murder, rape, and kidnapping combined. I don't want police... Just think how stupid that is. I don't want a policeman to be worried about marijuana. I damn sure want him to prosecute rapes and murders and, and, and you know aggravated assault and all the violent, violent crimes that can take place. It's just because of our prejudice and because of a lack of research and, a, and, and because of it. And this is something I think we should point out. We, people always want to have simple answers to oh, complicated things. That's a really good point. And a politician can make hay by saying, well, we're just going to say no. Well, you know, today we have an op- opioid a- a- epidemic, you know, 40 years after Nancy Reagan says just say no. It doesn't work. It's too complicated. Let's, like you said, let's study drugs. Let's under let's understand how they affect human beings. Let's make uh, proportional penalties for the use of drugs or the possession of drugs. Um, but that's not what was done. It's it's much easier just to demonize a group, say that's associated with a particular drug, drug abuse, and we'll just lock them up. Right. If locking people up worked. We would have solved all our problems, right? Because <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a country, we lock up more people than any other nation on earth. It's not even close. We lock up a ton of people right. in, in, in our country. So if simply throwing away the key worked, we would have solved our drug problem. We would have solved all of our problems, and we haven't. So the mantra of the 1980s that we're simply going to lock them up, that you, as you point out, we want a simple solution to the problem, there isn't a simple solution to the problem. It's a complex problem. And we are 80 years behind in our research because we were so busy uh, with propaganda, of racism, of misinformation, of good intent. Sometimes, you know, Nancy Reagan— you know, I'm not going to throw Nancy Reagan under the no, bus. she had good intentions. Absolutely. Good intentions to just to say no and all the people who are out there just saying, just say no, and this is a gateway drug, um, and trying to do that simple solution, we're being told by people that this was the right thing to do. Um, so a lot of these people are are victims, not in the same way that people are getting locked up are victims, but they're also victims of misinformation and propaganda as well. It's almost in a way um, – similar to, in my mind, of people who really believed in conversion therapy for homosexuals. You know, you did more damage than you ever did to help these people. By locking people up for drug problems, you did much more damage than helping them. Well, you know, we're history and politics and beer, and there is such a thing as prohibition. Right. And how did that work out? You know, uh, it, it created criminals... People still became alcoholics. And, and, and people forget, alcohol really is a dangerous, dangerous drug. I mean, compared to marijuana, more uh, domestic violence occurs. If you ask any, ask any policeman you know. When they go to a scene of domestic violence, more times than not, there's alcohol. Would you, As a cop, would you rather go into a group of people who have been drinking or a group of people who been smoking pot? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And well, it, it, exactly, and and the number of people, half the uh, the deaths on uh, car accidents. Yes, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's not even close. It, it, yeah, it's not even it, it's not even close. And yet, it, and so people with good intentions 
tried to get rid of alcohol. It wasn't just like we're going to be punitive and we hate good times. And it was liberals, by the way. It was progressives. We, right. we, we, were, we were hammering on conservatives here in the 1970s. Right. But the, 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 the prohibition was by liberal, conserv- liberal progressives. To, to, to some extent. It yes. was also fundamentalist Christians. But yes. it was people worried about domestic violence yeah. and violence against women. And, and, and yet it didn't work out. Uh, and, and, and it didn't work out with marijuana. And in the mid-1990s, the nation's largest cash crop probably wasn't corn. <laughs> it probably wasn't soybeans. They estimated that the marijuana crop was a $16 billion crop, and most of it growing in the middle of the nation. Back to Indiana. Indiana became a hotbed in the <laughs> 90s for growing pot to supply people and so you get organized crime in there. You get, you know, later on, you get drug cartels bringing this in. Guess what? I mean, it just sounds so much like prohibition. This is not the way you deal with. with no, these we've tried this before in history and it didn't work. Um, so let's move to legalization now. Okay. Uh, today, I think we have nine states uh, who have it fully, uh, don't have it. I, I looked at this differently. Actually, I need to reread my notes here. Um, because different states have, are in different stages of legalization. Some states are fully legalized. Um, look at it this way. Nine states have it fully illegal. Illegal. Nine states have it fully legal. And then, so then that gives you 18 states, which gives you what, 22? Is that right? 30, 18 plus 22? Is there at 32? 32. Gives you 32 states in the middle, which are some degree of legalization. Or decriminalization. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Decriminalization. Um, And this is happening a lot quicker than I ever thought it would. Um, It seems that state after state are first sort of embracing the concept of medical marijuana as as Pennsylvania has. And other states are embracing full legalization, like Colorado. And Washington. And Washington. Washington. I think Alaska might be on that road as well to full legalization. And that's going to be money for those states who are taxing it and getting tax revenue out of it. And I think what you're going to start seeing is very similar to what happened in Pennsylvania with with gambling, is that you had people from Pennsylvania going into West Virginia and New Jersey to gamble. And then Pennsylvania kind of said, well, why do they have to leave the state? We can have it right here in Pennsylvania and keep those people here and collect that money. And so now Pennsylvania is one of the largest states in the country when it comes to legalized gambling because we didn't want to lose the revenue to New Jersey and West Virginia. Uh, And I think that you're probably going to see a very similar format across the country. As Colorado is further and further away from legalization and as for full legalization for recreational use. And we're getting more and more data out of Colorado to see what does, what's really happening in Colorado. Uh, I think states are going to start seeing that and saying like, wait, 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 we can make money off of this. Well, States are always starved for money. Right. I mean, Pennsylvania has a deficit, but most states do. So this would be a way to, to uh, you tax it just like you do uh, cigarettes and alcohol, and it becomes a you know a cash cow, right? And 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 obviously people are going to do this anyhow. That's going to be the argument, just like it was for alcohol. Um, let's talk about a little bit of the uh, the medicinal effects of marijuana, alleged medicinal effects. Um, they say it can relieve uh, nausea associated with chemotherapy. 
uh, prevent blindness uh, by glaucoma. Some AIDS patients need an appetite uh, stimulant. Marijuana is famous for the munchies. Uh, Some believe, and there are some studies that suggest that it can ward off um, uh, epileptic seizures and migraine headaches. And it can reduce muscle uh, spasms that accompany multiple sclerosis, cerebral palsy. Uh, And and so, you know, it seems like there are some actual benefits for for medical marijuana. And there there are doctors who argue that we're late in recognizing this because it's difficult for drug uh, companies to patent the plant. Okay, (laughs) Like there's not as much money in it. I mean, you can grow this in your backyard if it's decriminalized and right. nobody's making money. Now, there is a downside, like there is all drugs. Uh, uh, people, uh, it does create psychological dependence on some people. And it also, uh, it's been associated with short-term memory uh, loss and a su- suppression of the immune system. And I know from my experience, uh, more looking at potheads, because although I used pot, I was never somebody who used it chronically, that I would say yes. They, you know, <laughs> they had forgotten class was that day <laughs> in college, and they're probably more likely to have a runny nose. Right. <laughs> and it can cause, because you inhale it and hold it for a while, it can cause chronic bronchitis. So there, there's a downside, just like there is for, any, you know, and that's another thing where we get, we try to make it simple, where things are gray. There's an upside. There's de- it seems like there's definite benefits from marijuana. There's some bad bad effects, right. and people can misuse it, like alcohol, like go on and on. Very and good. On. If you have a recreational drug, people are going to misuse it um, again. But I think we're talking about the concept of freedom and the concept of how. Again, I always go back to about what problem do you want? Do you want the problem of legalization or the problem of it uh, being illegal? And I always, in this case, come down with the problems of legalization. So please don't think that we are ignoring the negative side of marijuana use because, as Jeff just pointed out, there is a negative side to it. Uh, for example, in 2014, more pe- this is in Colorado, um, more people were visiting the emergency room, a lot more people for marijuana-related incidents. Now, you can't OD on marijuana, uh, but people were overusing it, becoming sick, vomiting, becoming dehydrated. Um, so there, there are negatives to it. Now, the last part I looked up, Jeff, was this federal Right. Prohibition. Me too. Where are we going on this? And I was looking at an article from Forbes magazine from September 2019. So this is relatively new. Uh, and this is what I found. The Canopy Growth Company, which is the largest cannabis company in the world, entered into a $3.4 billion agreement with the medical marijuana firm Acreage Holdings, which is in the United States. Uh, again, that's $3.4 billion holding that only takes effect after the federal government repeals marijuana prohibition. A couple of things you have to ask yourself here is why is this agreement even being made if people in positions of power may not already see the white writing on the wall? John Boehner, former Speaker of the House, Republican, right, I heard about him. said, 
uh, has also indicated that full-blown legalization is already a hot topic. He says, I have a strong suspicion we won't be waiting five years to see the federal government legalize cannabis. I've got to choose my words carefully. What I'm hearing behind closed doors is pretty sensitive. So this seems to be that you have an insider with a former Speaker of the House. You have um, big corporate interests here pushing. Uh, just to give you an idea, the Canopy Company also is partially owned by the Constellation brands who make Corona and Modella beer. They have a 37% stake in this company in Canopy, which is then the opportunity to have big beer and big uh cannabis all come together, which sort of is- We're a, back to the emperor. <laughs> we're back to the emperor. So uh, from my, from just, this is, again, this is from Forbes magazine, very respected publication, leaning conservative. Um, this is not right wing, left wing, nutty stuff going on here. And it seems to point the way that the federal government is going to take this off the schedule well, one they, drugs and legalize, well, or at already, least decriminalize. Yeah, they've already modified the concert, uh, Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970. And uh, marijuana possession and sale are still prohibited. But possession was reduced from a felony to a misdemeanor. Okay. And the maximum penalty for a first offense is $5,000. It's still one year's imprisonment. But the act provides for conditional discharge by which first offenders found guilty of simple possession or casual transfer may be placed on probation. So they 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 did... Uh, um, I guess, liberalize that law. But what we're talking about now, what these companies are looking forward to is is complete legalization of, of marijuana. They wouldn't be investing these big bucks unless they suspected that was, was coming along. And we're also talking about the interstate commerce clause. Right. Because now these companies can get involved in promoting and distributing marijuana possibly throughout the United States, which the United States, the federal government would have control of. We can, and, and it's it's interesting this idea of federalism because even though it's still uh, marijuana uh, possession and uh, sale are prohibited uh, by the federal government, they haven't really gone into Washington and Colorado and messed with any of this. No, they haven't. And, and, and this is an interesting thing: is legalization of marijuana a conservative issue or a liberal? Back in That's the seventies, yep. it would have been like, well, it's liberals; those hippies want this, and you know, the black people and the Mexicans, and we want to keep. But you know, the typical conservative believes in states' rights, and they also believe in individual rights, free market, free market, and so they would say, well, no, the state of Colorado and the libertarian conservative, which is typically, you know, you typically find more of them in the western part of the United States. Yes, you do, rather than the. Religion, they're you know so in Washington, Colorado, and Colorado is not famously a liberal state, uh, but they go well. You know, it's, it's kind of the individual's business. Let's keep government out of that, or if people are going to do it, maybe we can tax that because we'll have a revenue source. So it, it it makes for a very interesting political discussion. A large part of the Republican Party is religious conservatives, and they are still opposed to the legalization of of marijuana. But the libertarians are like, nah, that's fine. It seems that regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, minus the religious conservatives, there is something that you can appreciate of the legalization of marijuana. It's a free market issue. It's a money issue. It's a tax issue. It's a freedom issue. There is 
kind of something there for everybody. So, hey guys, I hope you enjoyed our pod on uh, legalization of marijuana. Uh, Jim Reinhardt, this one was for you. Uh, I hope you enjoyed our information. Guys, if you have any suggestions for us on any pods you would like us to tackle, I think we had a suggestion on uh, healthcare and how healthcare works, and I had someone else suggest uh, eminent domain and how the government is legally allowed to take your property away from you, which seems... That's a big issue with the wall, building the wall, eminent domain. And pipelines and things like that. So until next time, uh, go out and enjoy some Hemperer. And if you have any ideas, you can email us at historypoliticsandbeer at gmail.com.